day. Welcome to the Noob Spiro Podcast. I am the host for the show, Isaac, aka Shrek, the home of the Noob Spiro, where we interview spearfishing experts, authorities, and characters from around the world. Today, I've got Mick McDade. He is a long, 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 long time Brisbane Underwater Adventurers Club member. He has been the Australian Underwater Federation for Queensland records keeper since 1978. 1978, that's right. A long time. Um, I did this interview in his house where he has more than 350 mounts covering every square inch of the walls in his place. And uh, it's bloody impressive. He's a cool uh, older fella and I really, really enjoyed catching up with Mick. I think you're going to enjoy today's um, interview. We, we get geeky about how to do uh, a plaster cast or a cast fish mount. Um, so marine taxidermy. I... I had some of my ignorance removed and learned a fair bit about um, mounting fish, which was really cool. And uh, Mick was gracious and kind to have me over there. Really enjoyed this. So let me know what you think of today's interview at the New Spirit Community on Facebook, where I have two new inter- uh, two new moderators helping me out over there. I have Kurt and Ben helping me keep the peace. Keep that community flourishing on the Newsboro community page uh, group. Sorry, on Facebook. Check it out, Newsboro community. I'll link it up in today's show notes. If you go to newsboro.com forward slash Mick M I C K, I'll also have pictures of the mounts around Mick's house as well. I had a couple of quick shout outs. So Twin Palms Creative. I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but basically, um, I chucked the idea out there to the community. If you are a young person and you like editing films. Um, there's a lot of uh, guys getting around that have just got piles and piles of footage and nowhere to bloody um, send the stuff. You know, they, they don't want to edit it themselves. And so a couple of people have written in. Now, today it's Josh Evans. He's Twin Palms Creative, big fan of the podcast. He heard uh, me and Jerry Guerra talking about um, getting young ones to edit the videos. He wanted to offer his services. I will put his details in today's show notes. If you want Josh to edit your videos, he uh, he's... A, He's a really talented guy. Check him out at uh, contact at twinpalmscreative.com or you can check it out in today's show notes, newspiro.com forward slash Mick, M-I-C-K. Um, quick, couple of quick shout outs. Um, I really want to start getting the community involved in these podcasts. And by that, I mean, I want your voice, your ideas, your stories, your questions, anything you want to share. You're, you're welcome to leave me an up to three minute uh, voice message. Um and there's a way you can do it. If you go to noobspero.com, there is a section up in the menu called Nooba Stories. And you can start recording. You can record a voice message, and I will include it uh, in a relevant podcast episode in the future. And I really I really want to encourage you to check that out. Nooba Stories at noobspero.com. Come leave me a voice message, a scary story, lesson learned, um, a new bit of a kit or equipment you're using, whatever you like. Um, short, short and sweet is good, and I'd love to start including that in up-and-coming episodes. Um, on a different note, a podcast review. This one from Jeff. He says, must listen, Shrek is a, li- is a legend. <laughs> I love that. No shortage of interesting information and discussion. Love hearing the different perspectives on fisheries from people all over the world, although some of the American accents can be annoying. Highly recommend the show to anyone interested in spearfishing, even if you've shot every fish in the sea or haven't got in the water yet. Looking forward to seeing what Shrek has in store for next year. Um, Yes, I think sometimes the Australians find the American accents annoying and the Americans find uh, my accent annoying and the Australian accent's annoying. 
But one thing I've noticed from all over the world is that um, there's stuff to be learned from every different pocket and corner of the world and um, everyone has a, a new and a different way of looking at things and doing their spearfishing. So that's why I head around to all the different corners all around the world. But thanks for your um, review, Jeff. That was cool, man. Um, also, a quick review of 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing, the audio book. If you go to noobspearer.com forward slash audible, you can get a free copy of this book. So Matt says, we're all noobs in our own world in our own way but with this book you can become a little bit less of a noob nobody wants to be the guy running late to the boat or the guy who forgets his dive mask after getting all the way to the dive spot or the guy who has to edit three hours of raw GoPro footage or the guy who code browns you from up current or the guy who turns his best mate into a human shish kebab due to poor trigger discipline do yourself a solid and buy this work of noob art <laughs> and uh, Rachel says pure gold lots of tips that help me perform better in the Gulf of Mexico but would be good for anyone anywhere in the world being that it's a collective of tips from around the world so check that out noobspirit.com forward slash audible hey let's hook in to this interview with Mick McDade This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. They've been on board for more than 100 episodes, and I'd love for you to shop at spearfishing.com.au. They have a price beat guarantee, hassle-free returns, flat shipping rates across Australia, and you can save 20 bucks. For every purchase over $200, if you use the code NOOBSPERO, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the Noob Spirit Podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. Partners of the New Spirit Podcast, Neptonics.com. Neptonics offers the best spearfishing gear, spear guns, carbon fins, spear gun parts, and packages at the lowest prices. Go to Neptonics.com, use the code NOOB10 to save 10% of anything at Neptonics.com. N O O B 10. Boom. Cool. So, um, it's awesome to be live at Mick McDade's house. We're surrounded with uh, marine taxidermy of all different kinds. Uh, welcome to the show, Mick. Tell us a little bit about this uh, treasure trove we're in. Well, it's strictly speaking not taxidermy. It's fish casts, but um, I've been collecting them from myself and from other people for 50-odd years now. Hmm. And... Um, I got about uh, 350 to 400 of them uh, and that helps me in my position as records officer too because I can, if someone asks me something, I can get the tape measure out and rush over to one that's on the wall and <laughs> extrapolate from that. Yeah, we get a rough idea on weights and sizes and yeah. girths and that. Jeepers, um, I've heard some records keeping stuff before that it can be like um subject to a fair bit of controversy at times like uh um and there's the various different governing bodies and ways of doing things how does the AUFQ work so uh Isaac the in Australia um the AUF uh which uh, is what it's called nowadays uh, is in charge of it and there's each state has their record officer and keeps their state records uh, with their own set of state rules. And then there's also an Australian set of rules uh, and a national records officer. When I first started uh, spearfishing, I was interested in it and I was annoying the then records officer who was Graham Lay from Bundaberg. Uh, eventually... Um, 
I got the job around oh, about 1980, 78, somewhere there. <laughs> and I've done it ever since. That's uh, a lifelong obsession. Yeah. And uh, and we're going to talk about um, fish casting uh, for the Veterans Vault. Or and I, and I, But I wanted to ask you, what, what's the distinction between a marine taxidermy and, and fish casting? Taxidermy is when you get the actual fish and you skin it and you um, treat the skin. And as you can imagine, from when you've been cleaning some fish, it doesn't always work with some types <laughs> of fish because the scales come off everywhere and, yeah. and sometimes the skin is so thin. Um, and when you get a product from it, um, like even snapper or something, which go relatively well, if you don't look after them, they can go mouldy and brittle and the fins break and stuff like that. So with most fish, it's it's fibreglass casting. Well, I'm looking forward to digging into that a little bit more. Let's let's go back though and have a have a look at, at where where it all started for you. It started uh, when I was a teach well, when I was finishing high school. I used to live down at Redcliffe at one stage and. I was a keen fisherman ever since I was six years old and cadging fish off the hardy head netters off the, the jetties and things like that. And, yeah. Um, I worked out that, yeah, if you could actually get in there and see what's in there, you'd do better. So I started swimming around Redcliffe, around the rocks there, um, without a wetsuit in the freezing winter because it was the only time it got clear <laughs> with a little spear gun and shooting a few whiting and flathead and, and um, mullet. Yep, yep. And then you have to come out and sit on the, in the sun for 20 minutes before you stop shivering and you could go in again. <laughs> but um, when I got to teacher's college, uh, part of the phys ed course was to join a club. Mm. So I thought, oh, well, let's go and join a diving club. And I joined the Underwater Adventurers Club, mm. which at that stage had been in existence for a little bit over 10 or 12 years or something. And I've stayed with that club ever since mm. and just finished having lunch with a few of those guys I've been diving with for 50 years. That club's very much sort of... Uh it's almost like gone underground. Like the the visit. Like I, I didn't even realise there was a spearfishing club in Brisbane until you know. Like I, I I've heard of that club, and then people, some people online, sort of said, "Oh no, it's it's no longer it exists." And then I was chatting with another fellow, and he was like, "No, no, I went out and hung out with those guys. They're all older fellas, and so it's 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 not. You guys aren't really on social media or anything like that. So I guess the visibility's not there. Yeah, not in some ways. Um, We've also uh, got a section that's into underwater hockey mm. and they're much more visible. They want to attract people and they're called the Barracudas. Yep. Uh, but they're actually a sort of committee of the Underwater Adventures Club and they're the ones you'll find if you look up Brisbane Underwater Hockey or BUH mm-hmm. on the... Uh, the computer and uh, they're dead keen to get more people to come along there. I still go mm. and play a couple of nights a week and they've also just started up at Musgrove Park too on a Sunday afternoon. So 
did you start hockey when you joined that club? Was that yeah. something that happened straight away? Yeah. Okay. All right. So I didn't know anything about hockey, and at that stage it was played with uh, long sticks, uh, two-handed, <laughs> like, like a real hockey stick, only shorter. Yeah. Um, actually got one around the corner hanging on the wall. Yeah, right, eh? Um, and uh, it was only a few years after that that we changed to the short stick. Uh, does, what, does one day someone just showed up with half a stick or something? Well, underwater hockey was invented from in two spots. Uh, in South Africa, it was called underwater hockey hmm. and used the long stick. And it was also invented in uh, England and it used the short stick and they had all these cute names like they called it Octopush and they, oh, called, yeah. they called the puck a squid and they... Oh, that's cool. I uh, like that. And uh, they called a stick a pusher and it was only a small one-handed sort of Y-shaped dog bone sort of like stick. Okay. And... Not long after I started, they sort of said, oh, well, we're going to, let's make it into one game. And so they kept the name Underwater Hockey, um, but they went to the one-handed pusher. Okay. And New Zealand changed over around about that time too. I think they hung out a little bit longer before they changed. Mm, Stubborn Kiwis, eh? Yeah. <laughs> So underwater hockey started sort of similar time for you as as sort of serious spearing. Um, what happened when you joined the club? Did you progress faster? Did you meet people you went diving with? Um, what happened from there? Well, when I joined the Underwater Adventurers Club, it was about 10 years old. And the people who in that first 10 years had been really driving things and doing everything, they were sort of on the way out. Okay. And... The group of people that joined around the time I did seemed to have stuck and seemed to have kept going with you know, spearfishing and diving. And so, um, what you you guys formed sort of tight friendships and you, you started running the club. Did you start doing um, running comps and 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 what was the local spearfishing scene like at the time? Well, we sort of no one had any boats. Um, had a few wooden surf skis that we'd made and mm. uh, whenever there was a chance to go diving with anyone, we'd, we'd have to charter a, a trawler or we'd have to charter a... There were, was a, a guy with a big shark cat that used to run out uh, North Morton Way. Okay. Uh, and, you know, we'd do a club trip. We'd book him out and go out and do that sort of thing or if, you know, I saw um, uh, there was an ad in the paper from some uni divers who were going up camping on Masthead Island and so um, they were looking for any more people who wanted to go so ended up about eight of us going <laughs> and I'd never met any of them before and got on the train and I looked around there was someone with a spear gun and so I said, oh, you must be one of them. <laughs> And uh, we got up to Gladstone. Uh, they'd organised it all and they'd bought our water supply, which was uh, a big rainwater tank, oh. <laughs> which they had freighted up on the train and we had to roll through the back streets of Gladstone down to the wharf right, eh? and somehow stick it on the back of the Gladstone Star. 
<laughs> hanging out over the edge. We only fill it about a quarter full because we couldn't move it. <laughs> I, I still can't remember how we got it ashore, but we no. did. And But from there, I then translated that into the Underwater Adventures Club and we sort of were on the same boat the next year going up to... Northwest Island, and I've been going to Northwest Island every year since. Oh. There's some amazing uh, opportunities up there even now. Um, ha- has the area stayed similar to when you first started going there? Uh, it's a coral cay, so coral caves do not stay the same. They mm. move and they change and they sand up here and they wash out there and mm. the coral looks pretty over there and then you come back in a few years and it's not, it's pretty somewhere else. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it is showing signs of use. Mm. It certainly is. And the fish certainly aren't as easy to get whether that's because there aren't as many of them or because they're smarter, probably a combination. Mm, mm. Um, but the divers are better, so I tend to think that there's not as many fish. The equipment's better too. The equipment's better, the GPSs, all that sort of stuff. Mm, mm. The fish don't have as, as much a chance as they used to in the old mm, days. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you get a chance to, to sort of talk to new guys about, um, you know, spearfishing nowadays and, and and ethics and things like that, what's some of the things that you, you like to sort of talk about or do you tell them stories or uh, what's your approach? Well, we've got plenty of stories. Um, my preference is to pick people up from underwater hockey because I've then seen them dive before we get out into a... A situation where my life depends upon what they're doing in the ocean. Yeah. Um, so I know how competent they are mm. snorkeling. Um, so if I can do that, that's my ideal course is to someone's been to underwater hockey a bit, okay, and they could come diving sort of thing. Yeah. And um, other than that, we've taken a lot of people up to Northwest Island, and they've start. That's a good place to start diving, although it's a bit sharky these days, just mm. at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's, that's diving with the club people. You sort of learn how they dive, and like Tim Nielsen has progressed far beyond the Underwater Adventurers Club level of diving now, for example. Mm. Um, You you start with those people, but then some divers are are going to become a much higher level, if you can call it, you know, in inverted commas, Mm -mm. sort of diver. Um, And they find other people to dive with who can help them with with their abilities with that and share, Mm. share that sort of diving. Yeah. There does seem to be this sort of group forming habit in spearfishing that I've noticed. It's like a, a bunch of people will start and as you sort of identified before we started interviewing, you gravitate towards people that have a similar ability level than as you and then, you know, you kind of progress together. But then there's a sort of this thing where 
you know, these groups of guys and girls, they get together and that's kind of, they have their crew and it's kind of hard to get into if, you, if you're new. Like, you're not going to be invited into that very easily. And um, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's kind of bad because it's just like, you know, you just die with the same five or six people. And it's good because you trust each other, you know each other. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, the new, the new ones don't uh, get to learn from all that experience and stuff. Yeah, yeah. well, that... I sort of always followed the state spearfishing titles and, you know, I'd end up at all these different locations up and down Queensland Mm. and diving with all these people who a lot of them were good divers but a lot of them weren't. But, you know, we just got to meet all these people and I had contacts in the major centres up and down the coast. Mm. If I was up there, I could go for a dive with them. Yeah, nice. But the club diving tends to, these days, everyone's got their own boat and, as you say, it tends to form little cliques uh, and they don't need clubs. But when I started, people needed clubs because if we wanted to go down diving around Brisbane, we had to charter a boat or a trawler or something like that. Mm. We needed a a group of people to do that and... uh, with the club set up that sort of was how it all worked mm. i do notice like spiros love to um love to uh hang out and they 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 do like to to cross crews and all the rest of it it's just it's just this habit that seems to happen and um clubs kind of like you have social days you have these social comps you have really competitive comps uh and it is a big part of i think getting better as a spiro if you can the more the more experience you can tap into yeah you hear a lot more stories too you know mm. all, what happened to fred and yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't do that again sort of thing and, and you know you get all these stories that are told and, and you relive them when you get together for dinner or something and yeah. a lot more fun. What's a gnarly moment you've had out in the ocean? Like I say, really scary that you maybe you learn from or something that maybe scared the shit out of you? Or? Oh, well, we were out at Flat Rock in the old days when you could spearfish there and there was three or four of us floating around uh, and the way I usually dive is, you know, there's the boat anchored and we jumped out and we went in four or five different directions, <laughs> depending upon the size of the area was how far you'd go sort of thing. Uh, and luckily there was another bloke within sight of me and this white pointer turned up. Oh, yeah. And we both had fish hanging on the float. We had... Um, a tether line, we always use a tether line, uh, but we just had a, a float that was in the water with a, a, a T-line underneath it and just had all the fish hanging on the spike underneath it at the <laughs> surface. And this white pointer came in and we both gravitated together fairly quickly and he did about three passes, uh, quite a big white pointer, and he just cruised slowly and he'd come underneath us and we had to lift our feet up or the flippers would have been dragging on his back. Oh, wow. uh, and I had a power head but I couldn't get it on my gun and we couldn't get it on the other gun and the white point is still circling around. He hadn't even looked at the fish, he was just looking at us. Mm. And then... All of a sudden, he tipped his head sideways and saw the fish, and he just 
cruised up towards the fish hanging on the float, had a look at them, and just went down and disappeared, and we never saw him again. Yeah, right, know. Eh? It's just as well we couldn't get the power hit on one of the spear guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we may have, um, may not have had such a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. But we left the area for uh, straight after that. <laughs> Did you guys? Um, obviously, your buddy was pretty shaken up as well. Did you? And the and the subsequent discussions. Did you? Did you change any of your diving practices after that? Or not really. We were basically doing what we normally do, mm. and uh, we had used the tether rig and um, had the fish floats. But um, not long after that, I worked out that it was much better to actually have a fish sled rather than a float yep. in the water and use that as the float with a, a bag on the top of it and I'd put the fish into there out of the water. And while some of my friends would spend half their dive chasing sharks away from the fish that were hanging on their float... Uh, I'd have no problems because mine would be in the fish sled. Yeah, yeah. So when you go diving now, has your practice changed dramatically? Do you run a boaty or do you still like to anchor? Uh, I like to anchor. We have a bit of trouble sometimes with the charter boats convincing them that that's okay Mm. because they like to have a boat boy in the the boat, but... Mm. We quite often run what we call a pensioner's boat okay. and, and um, stick a few of us older guys who like getting up in the lagoons. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And so we go up there and anchor and we jump out and uh, the skipper knows how we dive and that we're not going to disappear in the current or anything because oh, there's yeah. no current much up there. And Perfect. As long as you've got an understanding, I think. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we keep an eye on each other but... It's more a, we're not looking over each other's shoulders when we sort of dive together. How has your gear changed um, since you started? Like, what did you start with? Um, started with undersea spear gun. Uh, had uh, a round pipe barrel. And that wasn't as accurate as um, the, the guns which have a, a guide all along the barrel. Mm-hmm. And then I very soon latched on to the Undersea Reef Master, which is the same uh, company but, you know, a better gun. And it's okay. a wooden gun. Mm. And I used that and then I had a mate who was a cabinet maker who copied the same design for me when that gun got old, but I still used the Reef Master mechanism. Okay. And uh, eventually those mechanisms started slipping because they'd done so many shots yep. uh, and yep. couldn't, couldn't really be saved. And I then went into, you know, um, I use a Dreno uh, for all my gear at the moment um, and not as a promotion for them but just because they got such a wide range of gear. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and, and grabbed... Um, there's actually uh, a rife paddocks, I think it was, oh, yep, yep. Um, which was more or less exactly like what I'd been using. Yep. A wooden gun with a groove down the barrel, and I wanted a longer, uh, longer stock. Um, 
because I like to lay it on the groin rather than on the chest. What about fins? What did you start with? They wouldn't have had the big freediving fins that we have these days. I had the big Turnbull Giants, which <laughs> are very thick rubber, very heavy, clunky sort of fin, but yep. a fair size, not as big as the ones we use now. <clears throat> but um, I swam a lot of kilometres in those because... As I say, I tend to get out of the boat and yep. I might swim two or three kilometres from the boat along the reef edge or something yep. and come back. And it's bloody good fitness for that, isn't yeah. it, too? And I also used to tow the boat sometimes. You know, if there was current, rather than keeping a boat buoy, I'd just have my long tether rope and mm. tow the boat along with us. I've done the same up there, actually, in northwest. Towed the towed the the boat for I don't know at least a kilometre or two, and uh, the, and the others just over around it. So yeah. So yeah. Well, eventually, of course, the the Mara's, um fins came along, and mm. we changed over to them. Yep. They make a big difference. Not so noticeable, really. Mm. Um, you still have to swim from point A to point B. Mm. Um, like a lot of innovation, I guess it's been incremental improvements. Yeah, you, you don't sort of notice it. It probably is a lot better, but... Someone said to me a while ago, like, um, when you go from plastic fins to carbon fibre, um, it's not really that noticeable when you put them on. They do feel a bit better on your feet, but when you do a full day diving in carbon fibre fins and then you go back to your plastics, you go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you sort of understand the, you know, the level of improvement. I think you'll agree with me when I say that contractions suck. But what if I told you there was a way to relax and steadily push them back and to do so safely? Freediving for Spearfishers at howtofreedive.com will help you to extend your breath hold, understand your body better and put you in a better position when you actually get to go out spearfishing. It's not a program or a course for noobs as it's definitely something for more advanced spearers who've had some sort of diving under their belt and understand basic spearfishing safety. But it is perfect for spearers who want a guided program with videos, a clear process to follow and a set goal. It's definitely got that. It's a 28 day program that you can stretch out a little bit longer if you haven't got the time. But it's this formulaic approach to get you to hold your breath in a dry static for five minutes. It's just a dry breath hold training that's actually achievable because most of the time we start with dry training and there are a few good apps out there as well. However, without sort of this, this process to guide us through, we get lost and we fall apart and the discipline goes away. Anyway, you can get started for free. Check it out at howtofreedive.com. If you do want to purchase it, use the code NOOBSPARO, but you can do the first couple of days free. Let's check it out at howtofreedive.com. Again, use the code NOOBSPARO if you decide to purchase. So what about um, so you you fancy yourself more of a reef hunter than a than a blue water hunter? Um, what what are your some some of your species? What are, well what species have you really enjoyed hunting over the years consistently? Well, I really enjoy eating coral trout. So <laughs> a, a lot of my hunting is coral trout, <laughs> but when something else comes past, you know, I snap onto it and. I haven't seen that before, so I'll chase it down mm. and spend half a day doing that sort of thing. But 
yeah, yeah, I've sort of always been interested in fish species. Mm. And I think that's evident just looking around at the walls, which <laughs> I, I think I'm going to have to show some people. I'll just turn on my GoPro, actually. Have a bit of a look around. Um, yeah. I'll see if I can link up some of this footage in today's um, show notes so people can sort of have a have a good look at Mick's place. So if you go to noobspero.com forward slash Mick, I'll link up a video and you can have a look at how awesome his bloody his walls are because um, this is only one room and they're everywhere. So, um, but yeah, um, so yeah, coral trout. Uh, I can understand that, and I'm kind of led by my stomach some of the time as well, um, especially with hunting, so I, I get that completely. Um, well, what are some of the techniques you like to sort of use to hunt them effectively? Well, once again, I don't, I'm not, don't I try to avoid deeper diving if I can uh, and just sort of play around in the lagoons and along the drop-offs, uh, but uh, quite often... I'll see a, tra- a coral trout and I'll see a ledge and I think that coral trout is going to go into that ledge. So I'm quite happy to charge at the trout a bit and have my gun lined up on the ledge and, and shoot it as it races past. Oh, yeah, okay. Some of my dive buddies swim behind and they shoot the fish that come out to look at what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're quite territorial at times too, yeah, aren't they? And curious, uh, depending upon how frequently they've been hunted. Do you know how their family groups work? Like, because I mean, sometimes you you know you swim, you might go swim five hundred meters, and you haven't really seen too much coral trout action. Then you come on a bommy, and then you see one coral trout, and you get down there, and then you go, "Holy moly, there's ten of them here." Yeah, I'm a bit suspicious about that. I think it's just that, oh yeah, we're going to live here whether you like it or not. Yeah, uh, and if I'm bigger than you and I can eat you, I probably will. So, as you know, coral trout start off as uh, immature, then uh, as females, mm. and then change to males. So that the bigger fish are usually males, mm. especially noticeable with the blue spots. Yeah, and a lot of areas. If you hunt off the blue spot, the big ones, then the younger ones will have a chance to become big. But they'll do the same thing. They'll eat the, eat the smaller ones that they can eat. Oh, okay. So, so what you're saying is we, we're doing them a favour by shooting the big ones. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to have some big ones. And, mm. yeah, you've got to have some males. But this maximum size limit, the only fish that are protected by that are the big males. And they eat everything else. And they eat whatever they can fit in their mouth. They don't care whether it's a coral trout or a fusilier or whatever mm-hmm. else it is. When do you, Can you remember when that, that law came into place? And, and is it just purely around cigaterra poisoning? No, that was not around cigaterra. That was around um, protecting the bigger breeding fish, yep. which are males. Fish like the Maori wrasse, um, they got their maximum size limit. At one stage there, you could still take one wrasse, but there was a maximum size limit, and it only protected the males as well. But that wasn't um, for breeding purposes. That was because they were iconic, in inverted commas. Oh, rather than endangered or at risk. Okay. People wanted to look at them. And that same argument was used for um, barramundi cod. Mm. 
So although barramundi cod are yummy to eat, they're not endangered. Uh, they're prolific. Uh, they've become prolific now. Um, once again, uh, they've been totally protected because they're iconic, mm. which I don't agree with. No, I mean, having strict bag limits with populations that are vulnerable or, you know, or even having a closed season, like, they, they, they sort of make sense. But just some of this sort of just, all right, we're just going to block that so you can't shoot them at all. It does, I don't know that it does. It creates imbalance in the reef system at times. Yeah. And the, uh, the paddle tail, the Chinaman fish, um, the red bass, mm. All of those got their protection because they might have cigatera. Hmm. The fact that most of the cigatera poisoning occurs from mackerel and coral trout <laughs> wasn't mentioned. Yeah, I think I'm recently recovering from about a mild bout of, of, of cigatera poisoning, so I've taken a break from mackerel, which is probably one of my favourite eating fish, um, particularly smoked mackerel. I love it. So well, you'd probably be pleased to know that you could get some nice mullet from the net fisherman on the beach and have a, a nice fillet of mullet for tea without oh. triggering your cigatera. Oh, I love mullet too. Yeah, mm. so do I. But mm. another underrated fish, like just mm. oily, great smoke too. Bloody beautiful. But yeah, they don't seem to re-trigger the the mm. cigatera when you've got a uh, had a case of cigatera. It's likely to recur when you eat a reef fish or something like that, but you can have a feed a mullet without doing too much damage normally. What about salmon? Is the salmon the same? Salmon is totally different again, so it's not going to have cigatera. Yeah, that's what I thought. But, um, yeah, it's funny, like, when you, you when you get a bit of cigatera poisoning, you get gunshot around all fish. But, um, yeah, I think I don't want to sound awful, but I think some of the um, stuff with cigatera, because the neurotoxin, and a, a lot of the people seem to have long-lasting effects and I don't know it's, uh, I don't know there's some arguments that some of it's uh, you know like you can make it worse by dwelling on it and things like that the, the poison as I understand it um, is long-lasting in the body it accumulates and if you've been happily munching on a bit of coral trout ten to, you know, five times a week sort of thing mm. eventually it'll build up and reach a trigger point so the fish that gives you a case of cigatera, your mate who's only having his first feed of coral trout won't do anything to him. Mm, but mm. it's just a matter of when you get enough of the in your system, it will does eventually seem to go. Yeah. It might take a couple of years or that before you can safely eat coral trout again. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm hoping it's just six months. That'll mm. be about all I can put up with. <laughs> <laughs> but I might add that friends and family are not impressed if you give them all a dose of cigarette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the problem with meat runs when we go up to the reef too. You know, like we wanted to sh we shoot our bag limit of coral trout and maybe mackerel as well and bring it all home. And if if we are on that, so that we're carrying too much of it, then it's it's not much good, is it? Yeah, well, freezer full of fish that you can't eat. If you're, yeah, you know, I don't worry the the big blue spots or anything like that. Quite apart from the maximum size limit, I don't usually even worry the ones that you can take. Uh, I tend to just like the leopard trout and stay in you know, up to about three kilos and mm -hmm. that sort of thing seems to be pretty fine. If you go to the different reefs that. Are, are renowned for it 
so if you stay at the reefs where it's normally not a problem, it's normally not a problem. But oh. some other fish like um, the coronation trout, now none of the Redcliffe divers would touch a coronation trout because they had an unfortunate incident with them at one stage. Okay. So you know, we'd be on the same charter trip and they wouldn't shoot them. Uh, they'd out in the coral sea. They'd spend most of their time chasing sea brim and stuff like that. Parrotfish. Mm. Well, what happened? It was just just cigarette poisoning. Yeah. Yeah, right. Eh? So mm. you tend to get a lot of big blue spots out there, which you could take back in those days. Mm. But we didn't bother taking them. So a, a nice little interlude there, uh, Mick. Um, I wanted to move into Veterans Vault, where we're going to talk about um, fish casting. So, well, the fish casting. Um, to explain it to people, you get the real fish. You remove the paired fins. Um, that's the pectoral and the pelvic fins, and they have to be made in a cast separately in a mould, separate mould. And to make the mould, I put clay around the fish to the halfway mark, spread the fins on top of it, uh, make a little fence of clay around the whole show and pour plaster in. And then when that goes hard, you roll the whole thing over, take the clay off and build the fence up higher and pour the other half of the plaster. And you then chisel them two halves apart and you can take the real fish out if it's fresh enough and it's plaster that you've made the mould out of and not fibreglass you can then fillet your fish and eat it I wouldn't freeze it for six months after that process though because (laughs) the plaster does get quite hot when it's setting yeah usually use dental plaster too rather than ordinary plaster Okay. And, and um, there are sort of refinements on that. There's uh, stuff called pinky sill, which you can get from some places, uh, which is a silicon that sets very quickly. And uh, you can do the mouth and, and that using pinky sill. It gives you the teeth and the inside of the mouth and stuff like that of more difficult fish, but it's expensive. Mm. Otherwise, you'd do the whole mould in it. Once you've got your mould, you then have to let the plaster cure for a couple of weeks and put your release agents and stuff on it and then you start putting your gel coat and your fibreglass in. Put the two halves together while the, the last coat is still wet and then you let it set like that and then you smash the plaster off or uh, if your mould is made in that way, you can take the two halves apart and make another copy if you wanted to. So sourcing materials, like it sounds like specialist sort of gear, um, where, where have you sort of sourced all your gear, your gear from over the years? Uh, dental plaster will come from Boral, just Boral plaster. Oh, okay. They usually carry a few bags of it. Mm. Um, so it's just they'll... gypsum-based plaster? Yeah. right it does have you know, different properties. They carry a few different types of plaster. Um, and 
uh, pinky sill will come from fiberglass uh, retail, you know, people who sell fiberglass materials. Okay. Quite a lot of them will have pinky sill as well. Yeah. Or you can get it from barns. Um, there's a, a barns place across town that will carry that sort of stuff. So you got your mould back together. How, what's the sort of the set time and oh, that depends on how much catalyst you put in you don't you don't have to go for strength yeah uh, like you would if you're making a boat so you can do it a little bit faster sometimes and once it's set usually the next day you would use a, a chisel or something to take the knock the plaster off it mm. and then you've got to trim the fins up and file the back of the fins. And then you add the, the in a separate little mould, you've made the side fins. It's not worth trying to stick real fins on because they're too brittle. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're better off doing that. Put the, real, the, the paired fins back on and then once you've got all that done, you work out some way of hooking it on the wall. You can buy brackets from America. So how have you done most of these? Uh, Glenn Stewart down the coast does the brackets from America. He works commercially. I usually put a couple of pieces of aluminium tube in the back, yep. which are angled so that when you've got a nail or something on the wall, they won't slide off. They'll sort of stay on. Okay. And I've put some sort of um, nail or bracket or something that I make up myself which I screw onto the wall and then the fish can just slide onto the onto the um onto that bracket oh yeah right oh okay that's not that's easy I like the way you've done that easy for taking it on and off as, as well like if you wanted to fix something there you might do it different but I like your way because um you can yeah. take it off and Theoretically, I can dust them. and hmm. That's a bloody cracker, um, Blue Spot Seabrum. So you shot that? Uh, I shot that one. I was having trouble with the identification of the Seabrum, so as well as rounding up, you know, everyone who went out on a charter trip or something, I would say, you know, keep your eye out for these, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'll swap your coral trout or something for one. Yeah, nice. Um, but I also chased them myself. That particular type, I managed to get the identification mixed up. <laughs> so I've actually got two or three casts of that type of fish. There's a much bigger one in the other room. Oh, wow. And eventually now I've got it all sorted out. And if you have a look at the spearfishing record booklet, yeah, uh, I've actually got about two or three pages devoted to sorting out the sea brim. Can I make that guide um, available to people that are listening to the podcast? It is already available to them. Yeah. Um, whether you're in the, un the Australian Underwater Federation or not, you can go to the, uh, the AUF spearfishing website mm. and you look up spearfishing records and as well as the Australian records in their booklet, there's also... Um, a booklet from most of the other states. Okay. Now, the Queensland Spearfishing Records is on there. It's in about three volumes, I think, because we had trouble with the size of it and the AUF website. Yeah. The AUF website wouldn't accept very big um, files. files. 
so it's in three volumes, but everyone's welcome to go and download it. Mm. I'm working on putting more and more identification guides in there, so whether you are interested in records or not, it's still a valuable reference for you to sort out the flathead or the seabrim or the barracuda. Mm-mm. Yeah, there's a ton of bloody awesome stuff in there. The artwork's fantastic. Like, um, you, you know, you can tell how much work's gone into it. Yeah, well, when it was um, just print-based and we'd actually send each club 10 copies or something like that, mm-hmm. there was printing them out became a bit of a cost, so we didn't do big booklets with lots of colour. Mm. But since I've been converted to going online and doing it as a web-based, uh, a digi- digital file sort of thing, that hasn't been the problem so much. Uh, Duncan Rayson from one of the clubs on the south side in the AUF executive has been um, able to reduce the file size somehow so that I can actually send it over the internet. Yep, but, yep. Uh, before he did that, I couldn't. That's actually how I met you. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, a bit of a shout out there for uh, for, for bloody getting it out because um, once I saw the book and, and your name and I'd heard your name around the traps a few times, I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to bloody have a chat with Mick and, and I realised you lived just up the bloody road for me, so I had to do it. Stephen Kegel, so shout out to him because he sort of um, put me onto it all. So yeah, yeah, well, he, I know him from Morayfield Underwater Hockey, and also through um, the AUFQ, the Underwater Federation Queensland State Meetings. But yeah, no people are, are welcome to use it. Uh, we'll link that up in today's show notes as well. So, noobspirit.com forward slash Mick, and then it'll um, have a link to the AUFQ where they can get a copy of the uh, Queensland Records yeah. book. That'd be bloody awesome. Do you ever need a hand, like with getting um, photos and stuff like that? How do people contact you if they are interested in contrib- contributing? Um, yes, I, I do because I've taken some lousy photos and a lot of the photos that come with the records are pretty lousy too. Okay. Obviously the people who shoot record fish, there's no bearing on whether they're a photographer. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, a lot of them seem to think that the main idea of the photo is to have them with this little fish sort of in the distance. Ah, yeah. Uh, Rather than just photos of the fish. Yeah, which doesn't really help with fish identification. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I do need some more good photos. Um, They've got to obviously have some reasonable resolution. Yep. uh, And usually got to show the fish side on and some of the, sometimes the tail or whatever, is critical in identifying that type of fish. Yeah. Uh, and there are some fish that can't be identified from photos. You've really, with those fish, they need to go to the museum sort of thing. Well, would it be okay to put your email in the show notes so people can come and email you if they have photos that they'd like to contribute? Well, uh, the email address is on the cover of the record booklet anyway. Oh, nice, nice. So, yeah, cool. yeah, I don't mind getting the emails. I don't mind people sending me pictures saying, what sort of fish is this? And Oh, yeah, perfect. I can, uh, I'm interested in the fish mm. species and identification, so I don't mind that at all. 
and they can tell me whether I'm allowed to use their, their photo. So the, um, the Seabrams uh, called a moo in Hawaii, isn't it? That's a relative of it, yeah. Oh, okay. So what's what, what have we got here in, um, in, in Australia? So for a long time uh, there was just that one type of moo recognised uh, and then the scientists brought out um, some more research, as they tend to do, and they actually said, no, that's not a baby one of those, it's actually two different species of moo. So when we actually went and had a look, it was two different types. Yeah, right. So this is a gym, Gymnocranius microdon. The other uh, related Seabrim, they sort of look more like a normal um, spangle or something like that, although okay. they're not in that family. Yeah. Uh, they look a bit more like that than the other me. Uh, there's a few different types of them. Okay. And mm-hmm. I was getting mixed up with one kind that I was sure we had, so I was trying to say, oh, yeah, that must be it because it's a bit different to this one. But in actual fact, I was looking at the same fish and eventually I saw one of the other kind in the flesh and I said, okay, now I understand. Mm. It's different. Yeah, so, some, some, some of the fish um, species are very close like uh, and resemblance. It might be just a, the shape of a fin or a dot or bloody, you know, like, and I'm terrible at it at the best of times. Some groups are much worse than others. Mm. Uh, some groups like the flathead, uh, you can do nearly all the identification you need to do just by looking at their tail. Yep. Uh, some groups like the seabrim, you really had to have the whole picture. Yeah, right. Eh? So we've got, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, okay, so you got, you got blotched seabrim, paddle tail, uh, blue a blue spotted Maori seabrim, and then a collared seabrim as well. Jeepers. So they're all relatives of the moo. Yeah. And there is a difference. And when you've got them all set out in front of you, it's easy. But when there's a couple of the pictures missing uh, and you're trying to work out what it is you've got, uh, then that's where we're having problems. That's what you mean about the blotch seabrim. It does look a little bit like a spangly, even though it's not related. That was a lot of the problems. When we were first doing the early records, uh, there weren't very many textbooks. Mm. You had Grant's Guide to Fishers, and there were a couple of other textbooks that I've got from that era. But uh, Grant, who has some beautiful pictures in his books, if there were five different seabrim, he would list two of them okay, and he wouldn't mention the others. And so you would get this seabrim and you'd think, well, it's either that one or this one because you didn't know there was more. Yeah, right. And you would end up making mistakes. Okay. So there, there's, you've really got to have a range of textbooks. Mm. And nowadays, of course, you can look on the internet and I might add that uh, a site that's always worth going to is Fishers of Australia, okay. uh, which is hosted by the Victorian Museum. But even they have they use a lot of the photos that people give them, and the host is not necessarily checking up whether what they've been given is correct. Ah, okay. And if you just go online and look at all the fish pictures there, 
about 50% of them are incorrect identifications. Oh. <laughs> so it's very much a, a obvious case of uh, don't believe everything that's on the internet. Yeah, yeah it's so, the Wikipedia of phishing identification. So you've really got to cross-check a lot of it all. Mm. Okay, so just going back into taxidermy. So, like we've uh, we've got our cast out. We've we've attached the fins. We've put in some mounting points. Um, what about fine finishing? Like, um, do you use like a Dremel or you know some fine machining uh, tools? To- I use a Dremel. Um, I use an angle grinder, yeah. which is not what you'd call fine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. Um, I use a finger file, electric finger file, and I use some ordinary old manual filing as well. Yeah. And um, uh, shoot a lot of fiberglass dust around in the air, <laughs> and obviously it's not as bad as all the silicosis that the stonemasons get yeah. because I haven't died yet and I've been breathing <laughs> fiberglass dust and talc for about 50 years. <laughs> All right, and then so you get all the fine detail right. You're starting, you, you know, you, you, you're happy with the shape and and you know all the structure, the finer detail. Um, I guess it's on to paint. Um, is there a prep before you paint? It depends on the paint. Now, Glenn Stewart, I know Glenn, known him for a few years now, and he's painted some of the fish I've made ca- uh, casts of and for other people. And he does a fantastic job with painting. Mm. The fibreglassing is mechanical. The painting is artistic. Mm. And anyone can do the mechanical stuff if they take the time. But when you come to painting, that's, uh, that's where you ca- it can be difficult. Some people have a flair for it. And Glenn uses mainly uh, airbrushing. He does use hand painting for parts of it as well. On the other way around, I use mainly hand painting, but with all the fish that I've got, and if you look at that uh, little video around the walls, you'd notice that a lot of them look like albinos. (laughs) There are a couple, but no... Basically, they're not painted, so that's going to be the next stage of my life is <laughs> painting fish, and I'm going to have to master the airbrushing more than I have in the past. Um, now, I use hand painting with oils, um, just like artists' oils. Uh, the airbrushing, it's just the automotive or whatever paints that they use in airbrushing, okay. like you would do on your, your flash car that... The hoons are driving down the road with all the flames and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So same process. So do you put a base, like a, like a white, underneath and then paint on top or do you...? Uh... Glenn uses silver as a base okay. and paints over that. I usually use white. Okay. Um, and I quite often mix the colours as I go. Glenn does lots of layers okay. with the airbrushing. Yeah, okay. It's a, it's it looks like a an incredibly uh, like when you look at a fish when you get up close and personal with them, you realise how much detail is involved in in them, and like I think the, the your level of appreciation must go up. Well, painting uh, a coral trout, which has all these spots and things like that, looks like it would be the hardest job. But in actual fact, I find them much easier than painting a fish like a, a brim. Mm. Those sort of barramundi-coloured, brim-coloured type fish 
I find the hardest to do because, oh. you know, just the, the subtleties of the shades and the shine that they have. And So, like, if, if people wanted to get into fish casting, um, is there are there online resources that you know of? Is there a good book? Um, There's a lot of stuff online from America. Yeah. And you can buy glass fish eyes and that from America uh, with painted ones or unpainted ones that are ready for you to paint and all that oh. type of stuff. And they, America really goes overboard with all that taxidermy and fish casting. Oh. But as I say, don't go for taxidermy of fish. It is a poor second to the actual casts. The books you've read over the years about it or um, have you thought about writing one? <laughs> uh, I did an article for one of the spearfishing magazines some time back uh, with Chris Piero. But um, the actual catalogues from some of the American companies like Waco hmm. uh, have quite a lot of stuff in it. Some, okay. Yeah, they sell everything. Uh, there are some books that you can find online, but not something you, you're better off going through some of the the little articles you know when you look it up online and play them mm -hmm. rather than going through the book I think yeah right okay cool uh, when I started off uh, there wasn't all of those online resources and things yeah, yeah. Um, one of my spearfishing buddies and myself said oh we're going to get into this and so we went in and saw the museum a Queensland museum curator and his offsider and and said, yeah, look, if we shot you a fish, could you show us how you do, how you make a mould of it? Well, you know, so they told us what fish they wanted, and oh, yeah. so we went and shot this fish, and it actually would have been a record, except for the fact that we didn't realise it was that big, and one of us shot it, and it went under a an arch and came out the other side so the other one of us shot it and that of course made it an assisted capture oh. and ineligible to be a record but it was only a, a brown sweet lip yeah. which is not good chewing and is hence not regarded by most people as prestigious anyway <laughs> um, so we took that in and their preparators um, made a, a, a mould up for them oh. And we watched and we went off and started doing it. Um, Don, the other guy I was with, uh, never really had the time to keep going with it, but I persisted. And How long until you um, produced one that you actually liked? <laughs> oh, we used all the ones. Um, I've, I've kept pretty well. There's only a couple that I couldn't use and... Usually I kept them until I got a replacement. Yeah, yeah. Um, first couple that we did, we actually made the fish out of plaster as well as the mould. And you've got to find the, the bearer in the wall and, and put your... Oh, it's so heavy. It's so heavy. Mm. And we stuck the real fins on. I've still got them, but they they would be easily damaged and as I say they weigh a ton mm. couldn't do a big fish uh, went to fiberglass and been going that way ever since so say you picked up like a, 
uh, like maybe a two kilo fish, like a five pound fish or something like that. What's the process, start to finish, time wise? Um, do you think what's a reasonable expectation of of, of um, completing that? Making your mould is usually done in one day mm. because you've got the real fish there and and you've got to keep going or it'll go rotten. Yeah. And someone did give me a fish that they left out on their fridge overnight oh. and forgot to put it in the freezer. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a smelly job making that, that mould. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so that takes a day. Um, then putting your fibreglass into it, it takes quite a bit of time, but you do it in stages. Mm. So, you know, you'd put your release agent in and a couple of release agents and then you'd put your gel coat in and then you'd put your fibreglass in and join it together while the fibreglass is still wet. Yep. And then when that all dries, and that doesn't have to be all done in the one day, when that dries then you take the plaster off it and then you've got to do putting your side fins back on, um, trimming up the fins, trimming up the join area. Um, if there's a big ugly hole in it, you've got to... Put draw the scales back on with your Dremel. Yeah. Um, all of that sort of thing. So that probably another good day, day and a half's mm, work. Mm. And then you've got your painting, which could be anything from one day to a couple of two, three days, mm. um, depending upon how fast you are and what technique you're using and what the fish is like mm. with its pattern and those sort of things. Mm. So it's, it's a bit of time invested yeah. in it. And cost-wise, um, pinky sill's pretty expensive. Uh, your dental plaster, uh, not too bad. Um, Fibreglass, you know, it all starts to add up. Mm, for sure. Sure. Well, you can just drop it off to a to a bloke like Glenn Stewart and, <laughs> well, and pay Glenn, for it. Glenn, when he has time, has um, painted quite a few of the fish that I uh, for for a while there. I was saying, okay, I'll I want a copy of that fish. Um, I'll make you a copy and I'll make a copy for myself, but I'm not painting it. Mm. And um, Glenn has then for sort of he still charges of course for his painting mm-hmm. uh, which he should and uh, he does the painting of it but it'll be cheaper for you because when I was doing that I'd do the cast for people for free mm, far out and, uh, oh yeah because you're, you're getting a cast as well and so that's yeah. your you know that's what you're getting out of it and quite a lot of those fish that Glenn has painted and is hanging on someone's wall uh, the one on my wall is still white. I haven't painted it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bloody hell. Um, I wanted to move off, uh, but uh, was there any other sort of um, advice or, or finer points for, for for people wanting to have a crack at, at fish, fish casting? Helps if you're an artist. Helps if you've got more patience than a normal person would have. Yeah. Um, and... You've got to be able to fiddle around with fiberglass, I guess, mm, mm. and clay. And mm, cool. All right. I'm going to um, put some videos in uh, and just show, um, I think, that, like, it's a special place just coming to your house and, and seeing all these all these bloody moulds. So I'm going to try and share a bit. Um, so if guys, again, go to newspirit.com forward slash Mick, I'll have um, some videos up and people can have a good look.
This episode of the New Spear Podcast is brought to you by the world's greatest spearfishing magazine, Spearing Magazine. There are news and reviews for the latest spearfishing equipment and gadgets inside. There's practical how-to and DIY type articles. There's spearing adventures from crazy noobers like you from all over the world. And uh, it's, it's a magazine that you can pick up or you can look at. And if you've got the digital subscription, you can flick through and let it inspire your next spearfishing adventure even if you're having a dry run, keep the stoke alive. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. If you're away from the good old USA, though, check out the international subscription. That's at spearingmagazine.com. Simple, accurate, deadly. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, and save $30 on any spear gun for a limited time only. Go to killshotspearguns.com. Check them out for yourself. Handmade in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin. Use the code NOOB, N-O-O-B, or head into the shop and say, Crikey, mate. And apparently Ed will hook you up with a $30 discount on any timber spear gun. Get your hands on one, killshotspearguns.com. I wanted to move on and chat about your library. You've got a very, very extensive looking uh, fishing, spearfishing library. Um, did you start collecting books when you started spearing? I mean, very soon after I joined the Underwater Adventurers Club, um, I was became a teacher and uh, I went out the bush for a while. And while I was out there, I sort of spent my time writing to, I'd pick a country and I'd write a letter to the National Museum in such and such a country Mm. saying, have you got any um, fish books? Mm. And quite often they'd send something back in English, which Mm. I could read, (laughs) and I'd try and track down the book. Uh, So I got a lot of, uh, you know, that was sort of my hobby as well back then in conjunction with the fish moulding. Uh, so I got a lot of books then and got a lot of books through the bookshops in England, um, some historic ones, but generally um, whatever I could latch onto, and I still do. Mm-hmm. I still like it in book format, being a bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> um, and I can pull it off and have a look through and see what ones are on the next pages and things like that. So they're mostly reference books? Are, are some of them like readers or are they all, all generally reference books? Oh, about half of my library is reference books on fish. Yep. And then I've got reference books on starfish and other marine animals yep. and other land animals. And, uh, and then, of course, I've got a few books on diving and, and fish casting and whatever else. Yeah, all right. Aquarium fish too because I've been aquarium fish keeper for a while. Oh, yeah? But uh, I gave, yeah. gave that away because you, you had trouble when you left to go on a trip. Um, Getting someone to look after the yeah, joint. So I've got a couple of fish tanks still, but I use them to put fish casts in. Mm. And... Um, yeah, and then just general interest books or other books to do with teaching or whatever else. Any favourites over the years? We've obviously mentioned Grant's Guide for Fishers. Well, I've got just about every edition or have got every edition of Grant's Guide to Fishers, which went from a little thin book when he was working for DPI or whatever yeah. it was called back then 
Uh, he's put out quite a, a number of editions. Um, and I've found that when someone, when I'm trying to check up on a, an old record, uh, when something comes up about it, I can actually look back and see in 1960 or whatever it is um, what that, that name, if someone used that name, I can actually find out what was in the books at that stage, what the fish would be, even though it's under a different name now. Ah, okay. So that's let me do a bit of detective work at times, but I just like the fish books too and looking back through them. I hope I hope a lot of this knowledge gets digitised because there's um, there's a move to that and obviously like, you know, you don't want to, we don't want to lose all this this knowledge and this information that's developed over time, and like you're identifying like some of these species that get better. You know, they start off with early um, identification, and then 20 years later they realise, oh, what we thought was two species is now six. You know, it's even worth seeing that progression. You know, and and sort of learning how they came across it, and that won't get lost because that's what all these ichthyologists do mm. is um, when they describe a new species or they make a change they actually list the history and which books the references in and mm, mm. they might have 20 or 30 mm, mm. Uh, references and they, they put that down and say this is you know why we think it's changed and but yeah they the scientists of course are very good at keeping that historical trial mm-hmm. and, and that's the beauty of using latin names too i guess um it's a it's a more scientific way of doing it like in terms of relating it, it back into broader it species and because a common name um is basically just that the people in redcliffe might call it such and such the people in Mackay might call it such and such mm. the people in hawaii might call it a moo um <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so common names are, are localised mm. or the fish might have 20 different common names depending, you know. Mm. Um, like snapper. Snapper, squire, <laughs> yeah. cockney, red brim. Uh, if you go back it, historically, they used to have different name for each tiddly little size of them as they oh, grew bigger. Oh, right. Um, but... And, you know, things like snapper. Um, over in America, they call snapper sea perch. They call it snapper. A sea, sea, perch, snapper. sea perch they call snapper. And mm. uh, it can get quite confusing. The Latin names, though, are not a guarantee in themselves because <laughs> they change. As, as yep. a scientist says, oh, no, that was really two species. Mm-hmm. and Or, oh, no, that wasn't two species. It's actually one species. And... So are you familiar with all of the things they get away with in fish and chip shops? There's a book over there which <laughs> tells you what all the fillets look like. And, yeah. uh, oh, wow. Um, and what they've commonly called in, in fish and shops. What they're commonly called in Australian fish shops or should be called because mm. they don't always call them what they should call them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Some, there's a lot of issues with seafood labelling yeah. yeah, around the world, you know. Well, they've also come up in Australia with a list of marketing names mm. uh, for fish. The people who... That, that was sort of an, a, a government project... Um, it hasn't worked out as well as it could. 
it has been valuable, but not. I don't often use some of them in the record booklet because that name is not descriptive. Mm. Um, it might be called Macklewaith Seabrim or something, mm. which does nothing for me. Mm. Uh, and you know, just, just in general, it was influenced a lot, I feel, by the fish marketers. They sort of, oh, it's got to have a name that sounds like it would be delicious. And there is some logic to that. Yeah. Because sometimes um, poorly, poorly marketed fish don't get consumed. And, like, we're seeing it now on the East Coast, like, where people don't want to eat shark because shark's got a bad name and, and um, just due to the marketing of, yeah. of shark, you know. But there's lots of sustainable species that can be commercially yeah, harvested. Yeah, and it did... Yeah, it's basically common names, so they've just given some more common names into the mix. And, you know, instead of a slatey, it'd be called a something fat lip brim, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't really think makes it sound much better to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Platinum snapper. Yeah, well, that's the sort of thing that they would do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. uh, yes, sometimes we use it, sometimes we don't. So if you're expecting it to align with the fish marketing names, the common names in the record booklet often don't. Mm, okay. I'm conscious of time, Mick, uh, but I wanted to sort of wrap up just talking about spearfishing now for you and uh, and into the future. What what does that look like for you now? What what's um when how, you know what's a good day spearfishing nowadays? Well, I tend to like getting up the reef um, and chasing coral trout and eating coral trout and going on charter trips. And as I say, as I'm swimming around. My eyes are always looking about to see fish I haven't seen before or that are unusual or that are good eating and I just snap off the coral trout and onto the fish that I've come across and chase it down and Mm. when nothing else is in sight then I'll go back to red throat or coral trout or something like that. So you, you try and get a couple of trips in every year or? Recently, not this year. We've been getting a charter trip up the Swains, and if the weather's good, we just snap over to Samarez or somewhere like that. Mm-mm. So, yep, so annual sort of reefs, reef trips and, and out to some of the outer stuff. Yeah, and go and camp on Northwest Island, and even though that's fairly heavily fished these days, um, I still enjoy paddling around there. Yeah, we can still spank the trout and let yeah. yeah. Um Not so many unusual fish now. Mm. When I first started off, I'd be, I got to know fish through the competitions, which was one species, one fish of each species mm. based. And uh, the weigh ins were good because there'd be lots of species you could look at. And mm. if I saw a fish I didn't know, I'd track it down and shoot it. Mm. And these days, there's not very many fish that I've got to do that to. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Um, I'll do just a couple of quick fire questions and then we're done, Mick. Um, if you could go back all over, you know, right to the start when you started spearing and give yourself some advice, um, what would you say to yourself? Uh, don't shoot a powerhead into a log. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a story. I mean, you might have to tell that one. Well, when I was first starting off, I thought, oh, I'd better be protected down at Redcliffe there. And I bought this little pistol, compressed air pistol in a holster uh, with a little spear and I got this 12-gauge powerhead 
and I thought I'd better test this out to see if it works. In at Redcliffe there, and there was this old log lying on the bottom, and I thought, oh yeah, I'll shoot it against that. Bang! It went off, and uh, the spear, which wasn't a, a big spear, uh, went sort of zooming back between my head and my shoulder. Holy moly. If it hit me in the head, I'd be dead, I'll tell you. <laughs> wow, right. So I've been very careful what I shoot powerheads on ever since then because mm. the, the log had no um, no sort of softened mm. part. <laughs> <laughs> um, like advice to uh, new spirits starting out, what's something you say to them? Well, I still reckon you have a much better experience if you find a club or something like that and you have all the club activities. It's not the same as it used to be, but it's still good. And also, I reckon the competitions are good. They're pair-based now rather than just on your own. I, t- I tend to be just on my own type Spiro, but... Um, <laughs> It's still good. Oh, cool. Um, dream fish for you? Something you really want to shoot still, but haven't managed yet? Uh, generally, if I find a fish that, you know, it's more like when I'm swimming along and I see something oh, I've never seen that before mm-hmm. that I'd, I'd want to get. Still chasing a yellow lip emperor, <laughs> but most of the other fish I've caught up with over the years. Cool. Well, Mick, it's been awesome to, um, to to chat with you and coming to your home. And uh, like I said, I'm going to link up a lot of the stuff we talked about today at noobspirit.com forward slash Mick so people can um, have a look and see some of the things I've seen because um, it's bloody impressive, these walls, and uh, what you've been able to achieve over the years. Um, so fantastic. And um, is there anywhere people can come and um, contact you or get in touch with you? Well, as I say, if they get the, the record booklet, it's got all the contact information on the front of that cool so it's probably best to contact you know by phone or online or something all right perfect first or track down the underwater hockey players in brisbane yep brisbane barracudas yeah yep i'll link that up b-u-h brisbane underwater hockey okay yep no worries cool (laughs) all right thanks mick Hey guys, thanks for hanging around all the way to the the end with Mick there. I really enjoyed visiting him and at his house. Like I said, every spare centimetre of wall in his place is just covered in uh, in fish mounts. And uh, jeepers, he's put in a lot of work and time into it. And uh, I really uh, just want to honour him, really, serving uh, the community and the AUFQ for more than 40 years as the records keeper. So what a cool guy. Hey, Next episode, I've got Adam Stern coming back. He's going to answer all your burning freediving questions, how to increase your breath hold, all of the stuff he gets hammered with on his YouTube channel and various other channels all the time. Him and I are just going to have a good old yarn and hope probably have a good laugh too because he's a, he knows how to banter and have a bit of fun, old Adam. So I'll see you in two weeks. If you love the show, consider jumping on patreon.com forward slash noobspiro. Becoming a patron listener, you can support on an episode-by-episode episode basis. There's three levels there. There's $2 an episode, $5 an episode, or $10 an episode. Massive thanks to all the patrons who make this thing possible. All good. I'm out. Have 
Have you ever wanted to slay fish with a weapon of your own creation? Good news for you, episode 123 of the Noob Sparrow podcast with Ed Martin from Killshot Spear Guns lays out the pattern and the plan to help you build your own weapon of death uh, and lay waste to fish with something with your own maker's stamp on it. And along with that, go to today's major sponsor website, neptonics.com. Go to the Spear Gun Builder page and select your components to build that magical weapon and use the code NOOB10 to save a further 10% off on anything in your shopping basket. So visit neptonics.com. Use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off store-wide. Interesting message today if you are a budget-conscious Spiro. Head to spearfishing.com.au, go to the clearance tab. There's a whole bunch of magic deals and bargains in there. Use the code NOOBSPIRO to save a further $20 on every purchase over $200. That's right, spearfishing.com.au, clearance tab, you'll thank me later.